Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Trump on trade. And Richard, I want today to look at economic policy in the Trump administration with a special emphasis on this issue of trade. But in order to set the table for that, I want to first put the president's views in a larger context. Our listeners know that you've been quite critical of Trump since he was a candidate, quite critical since he's taken office. But before we get to his views on international economics, we should note that your reaction to his domestic economic views, at least as expressed in his recent State of the Union speech, are actually pretty positive. What did you hear that you liked? What I hear what I like is that he believes in deregulation and lower taxes on the domestic front. What Trump understands is those things which literally assault his senses as a businessman. And he's been in business and he's been constantly frustrated by various activities that local, state and national governments have put against him. And he realizes that these things are largely um, destructive. And in this particular case, I think there's a pretty good correlation between the subjective experience that Trump as an entrepreneur has and the general welfare of the nation. And so what you can do as president is simply change the way in which the landscape worked by not enforcing laws in aggressive fashions the way in which your predecessor has done. And that kind of political bed rest is of an enormous advantage because even if there are no changes in statutes, people will understand that the odds of being prosecuted for one thing or another are down dramatically once Trump is in office. They also assume that even if he were to leave office for one reason or another in the next four years, there's not likely to be any serious change on this dimension with somebody like Pence coming into office. So they think they've got themselves some kind of a timeline. And if you then start looking at what Trump said, and he's right to boast about it, uh, the tax picture and the regulation picture is translated into real gains in the stock market. And we're now over 20,000. We made it over 21,000. But the moment he starts tweeting again on a Saturday morning, we're back into trouble and God knows what it's going to do to the stock market. So I think a lot of those gains are attributable to what he's done on the domestic front. And I think the thing that makes it going is these are present benefits right now. We're seeing the changes in the executive orders, in the non-enforcement, in the change in personnel, in the attitude towards the Labor Department, the EPA, and so forth, so you don't have to discount them. The trade stuff is much more uncertain. We have no idea whether he's going to get his way through Congress, no idea whether he needs cash appropriations, and so the verdict is out on that. But if he, in fact, had straightened up his game on trade, I think the market would be several thousand points higher than it already is, and a lot of people would be a lot happier than they are right now with this man. All right. The note that the president has taken to sounding when it comes to trade is that he believes in free trade, but it also has to be <clears throat> fair trade. And, and that's a formulation that sort of evolved over the years. That used to be a fairly standard talking point on the left. Uh, I know you think this is potentially dangerous. What, what is he missing? What doesn't he understand in your judgment about international trade? Well, first of all, when he puts the word trade, fair trade, he puts it in big caps. So we now know that it's probably more important than trade. Uh, let me just go through a, a little history of the term fairness to show the two different meanings it has, one which is classical liberal and which I embrace and the other which is sort of progressive and interventionist, which I don't embrace. And I think on the last point, there's a lot of closeness between the more vehement uh, Mr. Trump and the more articulate and suave Mr. Obama, both of whom tend to be fair trade guys. 
Uh, when you go back to the common law, there's something known as unfair competition. And what does this mean? It means that somebody else is opening up a school and you start shooting at its pupils so that they cannot attend. Or somebody puts up a stand on a street and what you do is knock the legs out from it so all the merchandise clatters to the floor. This is unfair competition because what you're doing is using force against somebody else who's in business. And it's also unfair competition if you attack not the business itself but its customers when they're coming to you, that's interference with advantageous relationship. So that's the force side of it. There's also defamation and trade libel, which is unfair competition. Uh, so that if somebody was going to simply say that your goods are really inferior to what they are, changes the relative price compared to your own, that misrepresentation leads that person to lose customers. You win for an advantage. There's no efficiency in a market if you distort prices. And so early on, the unfair competition stuff was really quite an accurate statement um, in a lot of complicated context of the prohibition against the use of force and fraud. By the time you get to the New Deal, we start to hear other kinds of things that are unfair, like unfair labor practices and so forth, and other kinds of unfair trade practices. And almost invariably, what you're talking about in these cases is that these markets are unfair because people are engaged in competition. So it's unfair to labor that management is bigger than it is. So what we do is we stop the unfairness by giving a labor monopoly. Uh, we prevent workers from contracting directly with management. We have an election so that a majority of the workers in a particular unit can then have the union bargain as a monopolist against them, and all the dissenters are bound by the basic position. That's called fairness under these circumstances. You look at agricultural markets, we have all sorts of fairness, and they're all in the form of price supports of one sort or another. So the term fair has been appropriated by both the left and the right. And then the question you have to ask is, when Mr. Trump uses it, is he a lefty or is he a righty? And the answer is virtually in all of these cases, he's a man of the left on this issue because what he's trying to do is to protect American jobs um, against labor or goods being coming in from outside, which may undercut it. That's the classic kind of cartel mentality. And then he says, well, we have to impose environmental restrictions maybe on what other people do. That's fine if we don't let them pollute our waters, but if they can polluting their own waters, that should be a local matter for Mexico or Brazil or any one of our trading partners to deal with. It should not be our concern. And if you then start to read, it's quite clear he's trying to protect the little guy in Fort Wayne uh, from the loss of a job by creating inefficient structures, which will have the other consequence of depriving some little guy in Abilene of getting a job because he simply cannot form a business if it turns out that all these so-called fair trade restrictions are now in place. How about the issue of trade deficits, Richard? That This is the situation where the United States is importing more than it's exporting and Peter Navarro, one of the president's economic advisors, recently had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal in which he said that Americans should be worried when that's happening. So why don't you just explain for our audience the basics of how trade deficits work and then whether they should be the cause for alarm that Navarro thinks they are? Well, look, one of the things to understand about this is that you have a huge multinational situation and it's possible for the United States to run deficits with one company and surpluses with the other, or it may run systematic deficits. If you actually try to change the world so that America is only running surpluses and not deficits, then it turns out that somebody else in the world is going to have to be running deficits and not surplus. And if it turns out that these deficits are bad for the United States by the same logic, 
they're going to be bad for everybody else. And so the only position you can be in is to have everybody in complete balance, which requires a level of management of the way in which the economy works, which will completely destroy free trade. The mistake that he makes is that he assumes that when you have an imbalance, that somehow or other America is left worse off. Well, if there is in fact a trade surplus from some other country, it means that they have enough confidence in the United States that they're willing to leave some capital behind in the United States, which could then be invested in this country to build plant and hire jobs and everything else. Uh, Once you work through all of that stuff, it now creates additional manufacturing possibilities or higher levels of consumption. So the investment in the United States will work for the benefit of the United States. Now, of course, these things can get wildly out of whack in some particular ways. But the way in which you want to handle that is not to make the rest of the world less competitive, but to make the rest of the world more competitive. One of my favorite speeches on this point was one that I heard at a Federal Society meeting uh, late last year when Nikki Haley, uh, who was then the governor of South Carolina, said, well, what have we done to make South Carolina more effective? Well, she didn't tell about trade barriers. What she said is we had a bunch of rules inside this state which were highly inefficient. What we did is we managed to remove them. And all of a sudden, a large number of foreign countries realized that it now makes sense to put plants in the United States because you have greater flexibility on job shifts, locations, zoning laws, capital accounts and a thousand other things. And one of the most important reasons why you want free trade is if you do get these large deficits and they're a signal that you're doing something wrong, basically blocking the competition means you'll never make the necessary internal reforms and you'll die a thousand other debts. There are many jobs that are lost today to Mexico. And if you stop their flow of those jobs, they would just be lost to unemployment uh, because it turns out that the goods that you want to make uh, would not be sustainable with the inputs you have. Let me put it in one other way. Our friend Navarro makes the following huge blunder in my view. He says, well, We're going to be much better off if we make American cars with American parts than with Mexican parts. The man is dreaming. Because if you use American parts that are more expensive, you'll make fewer cars and they'll be less successful in sales in domestic and in foreign markets because of their higher prices. And in fact, if you actually try to put this kind of restriction, the confident prediction you can make is if you start saying we can't take uh, cheap parts in from Mexico, you're only going to have American companies making luxury markets because they won't be able to maintain their margins on other attitudes. Every time you put a restraint on trade and an effort to control debt, You alter relative prices for the worse, and you make this country less efficient than it ought to be. One of the more controversial proposals to come out of the new Congress, and one that, best we can tell, is intended to react to this trade anxiety that President Trump has tapped into, is something called a border adjustment tax. This is a fairly complicated idea. Can you give us a sense of of what it does and whether you think it's actually a valuable tool for government to adopt? Well, I I think it sounds extremely ominous. There was a defense of it by Martin Feldstein, which I tried to follow. Um, And I understand what's going on. There is a sort of a standard position in international trade relationships uh, that if you start to put some kind of a tax on something, it's going to change the relative value of money. And so the value of the dollar will go up and the value of some other currency will go down. Uh, But one of the things that was troublesome about this is that the Feldstein argument was that if we put this tax on imports, it's going to be shipped back to the other people in their other countries, which means that they're going to lose a lot of money. And he said it's going to allow us through the border tax to lower the corporate tax in question. 
But now you want to think about it a little further and say, suppose it turns out we already had low corporate taxes. You can still put this thing on and then hopefully you will have somebody else bearing the cost that you can do by shifting it back to them. Well, if you can do it, everybody can do it. And so we're shifting stuff to them and they're stiffing stuff to us. And in the end, the retaliation model will start to take place. So I simply don't think you ought to do that. The question of whether you need a border tax should be understood completely independently of whether you need to revise the corporate taxation of one form or another. If it turns out you're better off with a low corporate tax, you're better off with or without the border tax. There are other taxes that you can raise, or more importantly, there are other expenditures that you can start to cut. And so as I started to think about all of this, it began to strike me that this is just another way to have a tariff war of the sort that we had with Smoot-Hawley. The second point to make about it is there's many a slip twixt cup and lip. Um, anybody who thinks it's easy to put on a regime of taxes has to worry about various kinds of exemptions, various problems of implementation, various issues associated with smuggling, various issues with located with misbranding or having goods come through third countries rather than through the countries with which you're trying to do business. It's an absolute nightmare. Direct regulation is no bed of roses, but taxation is much more complicated in the international reader than many people start to think. And so my view has always been no gimmicks, and that includes those by the right or the left. What you want to do is to have a general tax, preferably on consumption, preferably at a low flat rate, keep everything simple so that you don't distort the relative inputs um, and therefore distort the kinds of preferences you're going to have amongst various kinds of goods. So I am not a fan of the Feldstein uh, situation. Maybe I could be persuaded to do it, but in general, I spent my life answering the following question. What's so special about this particular industry with the answer, nothing. Um, Everybody claims to be special and in the end, more privilege and more silliness comes under the name of why agriculture is special, housing is special, education is special, healthcare is special. You name it, it's all special, which means in effect, you should use the same general rules for everybody. A lot of people have argued that there are Plenty of other countries around the world who have at least some kinds of protectionist policies built into their trade regimes and that even if you're committed to free trade in principle, we should at least have reciprocal protections there as long as theirs are in place. How do you react to that? Um, look, generally, occasionally you can figure out a retaliatory strategy that's going to work. But for the most part, I think they're all going to backfire. And this is the reaction that I have. Let's suppose that a foreign country decides to subsidize X industry. Well, if they're subsidizing, it means that they're going to be selling that good um, at a lower price than the competitive price would warrant. The appropriate response in the United States is to buy all that stuff at very low levels and then incorporate them into American goods, which could either be used and sold at home or sold overseas with a huge comparative advantage. This is a little bit like dealing with the problem of high prices and predatory pricing. Um, If you remember, there was a situation on the railroads where what would happen is one guy would decide to really lower his rates, get a subsidy like these foreign governments, drive the competitors out of business, and then raise them up again. And the counter strategy turned out to be decisive. Really smart guys on the railroad said, my God, these rates are so low, I'm going to suspend my operations for a while, and I'm going to buy commodities and ship them on the other guy's line in order to take advantage of his particular subsidy. So I think you don't want to start going down that particular road. The road that you should go down is to constantly jawbone them, saying, look, you're hurting yourself and you're hurting us, what good is it going to do? 
And in fact, one of the things that's wrong with some of these protectionist policies with tariffs and so forth is when you do change the relative value of of currencies, the nations that impose these high tariffs essentially find the real value of their currency raising, which makes it more difficult for them to sell overseas. Uh, So you now get this perfect double. The tariffs make it more difficult for people to sell in the United States. The high currencies make it more difficult for us to sell overseas. If you think about it, both nations are worse off. So generally speaking, retaliation is, I think, a losing strategy, uh, trying to be the, as it were, the citadel on the hill in favor of consistent free trade is in the long run the better position. And to certain things, like, for example, certain kinds of subsidies as WTO, and you can actually go after people to the extent that they're part of these world organizations. Final question that I'll put to you, Richard. There is an anxiety underpinning the political atmosphere right now, an anxiety that between trade and automation, there's a huge swath of American workers who are not going to have a place in the modern economy. Do you share that anxiety? Um, Less than most people. The first time I read that particular article was in 1950 or 52, and it had to do with the automation of telephone switchboards. And I don't know if you've ever watched The Crown, but one of the great scenes that they have is every time Margaret calls from Kenya in order to speak to Elizabeth, it goes through all these switchboards, and you have these banks of women and men putting these little connections into one room and another, and there's always somebody listening in to get the juicy gossip. Well, uh, it turns out that's all automated now. And if it weren't automated, you'd never have the volume of phone calls you would have today. Uh, So what happens is you automate the phone calls, and that means, in effect, that you now reduce the cost of running other businesses so you get larger and better news services one way or another. Uh, What's happening in the United States, I think, is really quite clear. There are certain things that we have automated consistently with computers and the like, and we'll continue to do so. But there's certain parts of the markets that require on-site direct hands. And if you look at an aging population and think of this complete cohort of physical therapists, trainers, all sorts of other people in fairly high-income jobs, there's no way that those people are going to be automated. Uh, So what will happen is uh, the service industry will have to be local. And the best thing that you could do for it is to get rid of the licensing requirements that in so many states prevent free entry. So the general libertarian view, I think, is correct. Automation is going to come whether we like it or not. What you have to do is to make sure that you follow consistently a policy which says no subsidies for the unworthy and no trade barriers for the worthy. And if you get rid of both of those things, governments become stronger, job opportunities become greater. The number of times that we have had jobs killed by changing the Fair Labor Standard Act, the overtime regulations, the Obamacare regulation – All of these things are job killers. The decline in labor market participation in the last eight years of Obama administration was strikingly large, completely offset the improvements in the employment rates, and that's because of the barriers to entries and the subsidies. So being a good libertarian on trade issues is more important now than ever before because given the flux, it's quite clear that people who try to play this game fine and fancy are always going to make major blunders. All right. Thank you, Richard. Thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.